we call our team on the ground our heroes. Mm. And um, they call me mom. He said, he said, um, mom, you know you call us heroes, but it is not without a sacrifice. And, and then the next day, he's talking about, he said, you know, if you did not pay us any money, we would still do this work because these are our children. Like, these are the children that we've been called to help. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and on this show, we find the world's greatest damn givers, and we listen to their stories, we learn from their experiences. Our hope is that as you listen to these conversations, you'll find the inspiration and the tools that you'll need to give more dams than ever before. Welcome. I'm so excited you're here. Y'all, I turned 36 this past week, and this morning, I threw out my back whilst playing guitar. So I'm that many years old. But really, not a big birthday person, but I do like taking some time to reflect, give thanks, plan, and dream each year on my birthday. And I'm so grateful for the ups and downs of last year and so very excited for the many things that await me and us in this next year, for my family, for my growth, for the work I do and am involved in, and yes, for Let's Give a Damn. I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for this platform. I love doing this. I hope you love it too. My guest this week is Bethany Haley Williams. She's amazing. Bethany is the founder and CEO of Exile International, an organization that provides holistic rehabilitation and art-focused trauma care to rescued child soldiers and children orphaned by war. She also has a PhD in counseling, psychology, and a license in clinical social work. Yes, she is quite the overachiever. She's amazing. And all that means that she has over 20 years of experience working with emotionally wounded children. She's also the author of The Color of Grace. In that book and in our conversation, we discuss her own trauma journey that ultimately led her into literal war zones to save love, care for, and rehabilitate children that have been abused, kidnapped, and that have been forced to kill their own families and their neighbors in certain instances, circumstances. So much more to say about this amazing woman, but it's probably best to get right into it so you can hear from her. Without further ado, let's get straight into my conversation with Bethany Haley Williams. Let's go. Bethany Haley Williams, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for asking me. Of course. We were just talking before the recording went on. We met a few months ago, and I've been looking forward to this ever since, and we're finally eight months later? Oh my goodness, Almost has nine it been eight months? months? That's so fine. sad. No, it's good. You y'all have been busy. You're, yeah. busy. you're a busy woman. You have a busy team. We'll get into all of that. Uh, so yeah, thank you for joining me. Super excited to share your story, your work with the Let's Give a Damn family. Uh, let's hop right in with you giving us some context. We'll get to Exile International, your work. We'll get to pre-2008 here in a minute. Okay. Let's, uh, sorry, we'll get to 2008 and beyond here in a minute. Got Let's it. talk pre-2008 because I always love to start with your story because I usually, we usually get some inklings into how you ended up the way that you did and yeah. kind of the work that you, you know, maybe either pursued or fell into. Um, so give us some context. Who, where are you from? Who are your people? What are the kinds of things that made you 
who you are today, 2008 and beyond. Whoa. Okay. I'm from Murray, Kentucky. Actually, I'm from Farmington, Kentucky, okay. which is between Murray and Mayfield, Kentucky, which most people don't. Big, small. Tiny. Very rural. Well, Farmington itself, like officially on the county line road, which means grandparents were next door, all my cousins were down the road, and then you turn the corner and all my cousins were down that road. Okay. So, um, yeah, raised really close to family. And Murray's a small town too, but not as tiny as Farmington. Sure. So, yeah, raised in a small town. Yeah, I mean, growing up the way I grew up had a big influence on my life. My dad was a preacher. Okay. And so mission work was always in my heart. Africa was always in my heart. Even, like, as a little girl— I would watch Save the Children commercials. I didn't want to, you know, my parents were like, turn that off. You've watched that 14 times already. So I think my heart has always been for kind of the vulnerable, the marginalized, giving my Christmas money away to like Santa at Salvation Army in front of Kmart. So, you know, that's kind of always been um, a heartbeat of mine. And then my major in college was social work, minor in psychology. So my background is counseling. Sure. You have some letters after your, your name, yeah. your PhD. PhD, licensed clinical social worker. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Three on the Enneagram. So, I mean, all of the You're letters. You're out there getting it. I'm just getting it. <laughs> And loving it. And, um, yeah, so— Did you go to school here in Nashville? How did you end up in Nashville? Grad school. Okay. Yeah. Uh, master's in social work. Yeah. Okay. And and went on mission trips off and on a lot of um, kind of my For people life. that don't—there are Christians that listen to this sure. podcast. There are many that are not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, explain a mission trip. Yeah. So a mission trip could mean a lot of different sure. things. I think globally you would say um, maybe a humanitarian trip. So for me, that looked like uh, the first the first trip I went on was to Zimbabwe, and then um, how old were you? I was fresh out of high school. Okay, seventeen, eighteen. Yeah, yep. seventeen, eighteen, and then I went. Um, I think uh, Kenya, maybe. And so a lot of my adult life was sporadically going on um, trips overseas to serve. Tell me about these trips. So uh, I grew up. Christian as well. Yeah. And went on these sorts of trips as well. Uh, and, and I've also taken people on lots of these trips in early in my 20s before I kind of figured out what my career was going to be. Um, and I have an issue with so many of the kinds of trips that were taken, right? Amen. Um, <laughs> you know, you have trips, that you have a lot of it is the posture of the people going on the trip and the kind of the framework how we talk, the vision we cast for this trip. I'm all for it. I'm all for, you know, helping people and those trips stretch us and they grow us and all that stuff. But so many of these trips end up turning into, uh, I mean, people looking for their next, uh, you know, Facebook profile picture Mm -hmm. and um, uh, white savior complex. And we're going over there to save these people. They need us. Mm -hmm. Um, They need what we have to offer. And you, you know this, and we'll get more into the work that you're doing. You know that that's not true. Mm -hmm. The story you told me before the mic went on, which I want you to share later on, these people are fearless and mm-hmm. they know their purpose and they know what they need to do and they know what they want to do. And yes, they have material needs, uh, but they don't necessarily want them from you, uh, right? These white people that come in and kind of like paint walls and, yeah. you know, hand out food and meals and recycled shoes and shirts and all that. So uh, what was your experience on those trips? Would you change anything? Was it that sort of like white savior? And how did you, uh, how did you learn to not function that way? Now your career 
uh, is f- uh, focused on helping people in a lot of those same countries in that same area. So what, what, what I don't know. I don't know what my question is yeah, here. What was no. your experience with that, and how, what have you learned? This is one of my passions. So, um, yeah, I'm really glad we're talking about this. I think at the beginning, um, you know, first trip I went on, I was, what was I, 17, 18 years yeah. old? And so I don't remember having the thought that these people need me, but the posture really of the whole trip was sure. we are going to offer something that they don't have. Yep. And been on several trips kind of since then. Of course, we do with Exile International totally different, like long-term deep work now where yep. we only hire African staff on the ground. But I think then the concept was definitely we have something that they need. And so we're going to go over and offer them something that we have that they need. Yeah. And now as Exile International, we don't take short-term mission trips. And a lot of that is because we want to make sure that the community sees the programs that are led as African programs led by Africans who are incredibly intelligent, who have more experience than I do living in war. They know what their own children need, and they know what is appropriate for their own culture. So the question that we ask maybe more than any other question to our team on the ground is, what do you recommend? What do you think we should do in this situation? And we specifically with our team on the ground have what we call relational programming. So we look at them like they are our family and they look at us like we are their family and we serve together side by side with them continually ask, like giving us feedback on, this is what I would recommend culturally. So it, it's not that all short-term mission trips are bad, but but I think when you go in with a posture, a long, a heart posture of a long-term yeah. mindset. So yeah. basically, I'm going on this trip, maybe as a vision trip, to listen and to learn, to ask what those on the ground need, what they recommend, with a long-term mindset of how can I walk beside of them in the long run. Was there a moment when you had that shift from like white savior to no, we need to be here long term. Uh, we need to come in with a posture of serving versus saying I'm here to kind of save the day. Or was it sort of just your experiences going back, going back, talking, conversations? Because sometimes, you know, I, I've heard uh, some of my guests and some a lot of people that I know because that this is my world. That was my world sure. that I grew up in was somebody somebody came to them and just told them straight up, we don't need you. Mm. Like, we don't need you. And that was the thing that shifted. And for others, it's been kind of this long-term, like, grind. Like, I'm going to keep going. And then you finally realize, wait a second, these people are happy with or without me. Oh, man. Oh. And, and they, they've been getting along for so long. Not that they don't – there aren't needs and there aren't things that we can come alongside them, for sure. The, right. The, we're going to talk about this amazing work that you're doing. But – it's a posture and it's a heart attitude and it's it's how it's how we say things and it's yeah. how we come in and it's the flash and the pomp or the lack thereof mm-hmm. that kind of communicates to them, oh, these people really have our best interest in mind versus they're just looking for a photo op. Man, I know. And I think it's tough. I mean, it's it's tough because like I'll post pictures of our kids dancing and singing and I'll get tons of messages. Can I go over? When yep. is your next trip? Yep. And and I think we have to stop and ask ourselves, am I wanting to go over to sit with them and say, how can I serve you? And do I even need to be there? 
or we wanting to go over because, man, that's a shot in the arm. Like, that feels like an adrenaline rush to me to, like, be dancing in the middle of all of those kids. So it's a it's a heart check, really. It's like, what are the long-term – for I'll give you a quick example. So we work in war zones, um, work in Congo and Uganda, and one of our resident rehabilitation centers um, – was really in danger because we needed a protection wall. They mm. were just like in the middle of everything and we've got rescued child soldiers and children orphaned by war in this place and um, the rebel activity was high around the city that we work in, Goma. And so we really, really needed a protection wall that was somewhat bulletproof. And um, it was a lot of money, a lot of money to build that wall. And, and man, we were doing everything we could to raise the money to build that wall. And we had a church group, and they said, hey, we can send our teenagers over, and they can build the wall. And I said, they don't know how to build the wall. Yeah. They don't know how. how, Do they know how to use volcanic rock to build a bulletproof wall? No, they don't know how to build this wall. We don't. We've got people. Like, honestly, some of our older kids were the ones who built the wall. Yeah. Because they knew how to build this wall with volcanic rock to make it bulletproof. But... And so, um, you sort of turned them down. Yeah, Yeah. totally. I was like, no, we don't need your help. We, I love you, but we don't need your help. We never heard from them again. They didn't say, Hey, that's okay. We're going to do a fundraiser here and raise this money for you. So it's, again, it's that heart check, heart posture of why. It's such a wild mindset that they would spend, I don't know what a plane ticket costs to there, but I've taken dozens and dozens of international trips. I've been all over the world. Like, I know what that costs. Yeah. So we're going to take all these kids over there to build, you know, this this kid that plays PlayStation all day and that girl that's a cheerleader. And, you know, like, again, well-meaning, I'm sure. sure. I don't think they have, you know, horrible thoughts. Either. There's not evil in their hearts when right, they're right, right. wanting to do this. But tens of thousands of dollars to get over there instead of saying – we're gonna we're gonna work our asses off the next like month. We're gonna raise the money for you. Like we can do this. Yeah. Uh, no, we, like it's just a weird it's a weird mindset. Sure. And again, if I had not gone on short term mission trips at the very beginning, would I have been doing what I'm doing? I don't know. But I think sure. I think the balance Same with me. is yeah. right. I think the balance is if you go on a short term mission trip, have a long term mindset, and your posture is listening and learning, and. Uh, I mean, to be real, our staff, our African staff on the ground, are spiritual giants compared to us. Like, they mentor us. They teach us because we just don't get it in our Western world. We don't get it. And um, so we kind of look at it as the opposite of, like, how can we learn from you as opposed to us going in and kind of being the ones who know the answers. Yeah. I am a big fan. We'll get back to Exxon International in a second. I am a big fan of Twitter. I use Twitter mm. all the time. Yeah. People that follow me on there know that I get in trouble all the time and mm-hmm. I have to apologize a lot, but I love it. It's a great platform for building. It really is. I use it as a platform to like, I have friends all over the world now because of Twitter. And I'm always fascinated by how people populate their Twitter bio. Uh, you have a few things in your Twitter bio, but you also have the words, you describe yourself as a believer in the broken, mm. which... You know, you're sharing that you're, you know, you're sharing your qualifications, which you should. Uh, you know, I'm co- founder of Exxon International, PhD, this, that, and the other, and I'm a believer in the broken. Why put that in there, and what does that mean to you? Yeah, well, personally, and this is, I guess, what I didn't share before. So I have really my own journey through trauma that led me to mm. start Exxon International. I my first marriage ended in a traumatic divorce. Mm. We were both leaders in the church. 
like leading a young marrieds class before right before everything blew wow. up. I mean, wow. it was the epitome of everyone thought we had it together, but on the inside, falling apart. Fall. I mean, for years, falling apart. Wow. And so the divorce was really public, um, and traumatic in a lot of different ways that mm-hmm. I won't get into. But the result, a big part of the result was that I went through a deep, deep depression and had PTSD from partly the marriage and then some things that happened the year after the marriage. So I'm like counselor, three on the Enneagram, have it together, come to me with your problems. And then I go off the deep end in terms of depression, PTSD, became suicidal at one point, checked myself into a hospital, and really just had to claw my way out of that. I mean, it's not a pretty story that one day I read this thing and it changed my life. And no, I mean, it was get up, fall down, claw your way out, things start looking great, and then go through this deep depression again. So it was like a year or so more coming out of it. But I had just kind of come out of that when I went to Africa, well, when I went to Congo for the first time. So in the deepest part of my dark time is what I call it, I desperately needed people to believe in me. Mm. I needed people to see me, not what I'd done, not what was done to me, but what I could be, like who, who my true self is. And so I think because I needed people to believe in me and see me past my trauma and my bad decisions or whatever that would be. When I met kids in Congo that had been deeply traumatized because of the war and had PTSD and couldn't speak because they'd watched their father be killed by rebels in horrific ways, all of them thought, no one knows who I am. No one even knows the war's going on. No one knows I was abducted. The world doesn't know who I am. And so I just wanted to tell them, no, like people can believe in you. Mm. And, you know, I see you past what you were forced to do. I see past what you experienced into the person that you can become. And that's kind of how it, it, it felt like like my world and the kids' world who'd survived war, which our trauma is so far from like what I experienced is just a drop in the bucket compared to the severe trauma that they've gone through. But I think Believer in the Broken, to me, is seeing someone past where they are right now. Because when we're in the middle of that darkness, a lot of people commit suicide because, because they basically think it won't get better. Yeah. Because if they know it will get better, they're probably not going to commit suicide. Yeah. So there's this moment of needing somebody to hope for you, needing somebody to say, I, I, I am going to speak truth into the situation to say it, it, this is a chapter and there's another chapter that's going to come. That's beautiful and hard. Oh, um, yeah. All the things. I think it's so funny you mentioned that, you know, you you and your ex-husband were, you know, leading a young marriage yeah. and you're a counselor at the professional level. Mm -hmm. I always think it's odd how we, you know, it's the syndrome of like, you know, the plumber that's got his sink clogged up, right? Because he spends all day doing plumbing or the mechanic whose car is shit because he spends all day fixing cars. We sort of in the moment, in these dark times, we lose when stress comes and when these situations come, we lose 
like you know you've you've probably helped at that point you had helped so many people out of similar situations but you couldn't do a thing to help yourself out of it yep. right mm-hmm. and we need each other so desperately in those times um because it's 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 we you, you had it here you had it in your you you knew all the stuff you had spent years studying and in that moment it didn't matter right none of it mattered right because it's happening to me now and it really hurts mm-hmm. and it's really hard yeah yeah and I would say so one of the first things that happened after starting exile is I wrote a uh an kind of an art therapy workshop for kids okay who had survived war yeah and there wasn't a lot out there at that time. And I remember sitting down and saying a prayer, and I was like, God, what helped me? Like, not what I've studied, not what I've been trained in, but what helped me work through a flashback? What helped me overcome an anxiety attack? Mm -hmm. What wording did I tell myself that got me from point A to point B? And that's what I used, really. I mean, of course, I had training, but you learn healing at a totally different level when you've had to experience Mm. it yourself. Yeah. And then, and that's so much like what our philosophy at Exile is wrapped around is purpose out of pain. Yeah. And using your brokenness to like searching for the beauty that's coming out of brokenness and knowing that there's so many people who are changing the world that would never, ever, ever have done that had they not gone through deep, deep brokenness. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So 2008 is when Exile is founded. Mm -hmm. How long between that trip to the Congo, right, Mm -hmm. and 2008? Is that happening at the same time? Are those around the same time? Yeah. So I I went to the Congo for the first time in June, I think, of 2008. Okay. And I went with another organization to help lead a trauma care workshop. Okay. For um, women who were living in displacement camps who had run from the rebels because of the war, there were 10 ladies who went on that trip. And so we were leading a trauma healing workshop for those uh, ladies. And then we also visited a couple orphanages. And that's where I met child soldiers for the first time and uh, met children who'd been orphaned because of the war for the first time. And, you know, like we talked about, I'd been to Africa several times, but that trip completely wrecked me. And on the way home, I had this clear, like, I'm supposed to start a nonprofit. I I was in full-time private practice at the time, like making pretty good money, sure, yeah. finally digging my way out of the debt yep. that I'd been in, just getting my head above water emotionally. And then I come back and dive headfirst into this passion that it felt like it was bigger than me. Like it felt like I wanted to stand up on the rooftop and scream, do you know what is happening to these Mm. kids? Like, do you know that they are being kidnapped? Yeah. Do you know they're on their way to school and someone is taking them? Yeah. Um, And people didn't know. Like, people don't Mm -hmm. understand. When when people hear about child soldiering, they think, oh, yeah, that thing that happened so many years ago. Yep, yep. But they're, and they don't understand it's happening. No. I mean, there are over 100 kids rescued every month just in the area that we work in. So people don't know about it. And I just wanted to, like, I was angry, I think, at that point. It started kind of out of this ticked-off place. But that's kind of how you start things sometimes, out of this, like, righteous anger. Most of the, yeah. I, most of the time, right? It's, 
yeah, I, I, I resonate with that so deeply on a lot of the projects that I've started, a lot of things I've been involved in is it doesn't come from like you were off on some meditation retreat and it just like this, this cloud opened up above your head and go do this. It's like, no, I'm, I'm fucking pissed off Mm -hmm. right now. This is wrong. This is an injustice. And is anyone going to, nope. Okay. I'm going to do something. Right. Yeah. Um, so educate us a little bit on child soldiers, right? Because people have probably heard, right. They think it happened. They don't think it, they've heard about Joseph Coney, they, you know, invisible chill, all that they've, they've, they know generally. Yeah. What it means, what the child soldier thing means, but you're telling me it's still, you know, not a hundred are being kidnapped or put into it, a hundred being rescued a month, which means there are hundreds and thousands more. So what is happening right now? Yeah. Where is this happening? How is it happening? Why is it happening? Yeah. Well, in general, um, there are around 250,000 child soldiers in the world. And so that are girls and boys. It can mean anything from kidnapping a kid and forcing them to kill and fight and training them to use a gun. Um, The official language is children in armed conflict, and so that can be kidnapping a kid and they become a spy for you. Sure, they might not be actually out there, but they're part of it. They're enabling it. Right. So 30% are girls, and a lot of those girls are used as sex slaves. Um, They have the hardest time escaping because they'll often have two and three kids. So if they escape, they also have to escape with their kids. And then when, like, the U.N. sets this time, they the U.N. will sometimes set a time to meet with the rebels to try to get kids that are child soldiers. Um, but the rebels will often, like, hide the girls because they definitely don't want the girls to be taken. So um, we work in the areas of Uganda and Congo. So Uganda, the war is not going on anymore but they're all LRA-affected kids. And so we've heard about Joseph Coney's. So yep. They're definitely kids who were abducted by the Lord's Resistance Army, which is the rebel group that, that he uh, leads, leads even currently. Yeah. But the war's not going on anymore, which is great. But there were 60,000 kids abducted during that war. Most of our work is going on in Congo. And so in Congo, there are uh, 30, 40 different rebel groups. So it's kind of like the Wild West in a sure. certain degree, but it's just a lot harder core. Why are they using kids? Like, can they not recruit enough teenagers and adults? Like, why are they using kids? I would think if I was a really bad person, I'm trying to, you know, create an army. I wouldn't want to use kids. Like, I have three kids. <laughs> they're, they're, uh, they don't know what's going on half the time. They don't know which way is up. And they're inconsistent and they're, uh, you know, one day they're in a good mood, one day they're in a grouchy mood, which I guess adults can be that way as well. But, like, why are they using these kids? Is it Because it's – I don't know. Why, why Why is that happening? Yeah. Well, kids are really moldable, right? Um, sure. Yeah. Right. So average – You can tell them yeah. the, the moon is made out of cheese and this is likely – You can brainwash yeah, them. Yeah, sure, 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 sure. You can brainwash them so easily. And that's what happens. So the average age of a child when they're abducted is around 12 and their average time in captivity is around three years. So they, yeah, it's very easy to brainwash a child. And that's what happens. Then then, they're, then you raise them, basically. So you train them to be a soldier. You train them. You can tell them what you want to tell them. Um, they, and 12 is interesting, right? Because, I mean, I remember being 12. I know some 12-year-olds. Like, you, you've lost a little bit of that gullibility and that ability to brainwash, but you not not entirely. And... Now hormones are changing and, you know, it's that time in life when you're trying to figure out 
who you are. Yeah. And, you know, if you're a boy, 12-year-old boy, like you're having these feelings of being a man and wanting to grow up and be part of the – so that is a very like – Sure. And a lot – and some of them are recruited because you may have a 14, 15, 16-year-old and they'll, again, using kind of brainwashing techniques, uh, you know, you're hungry and you're starving sure. because of poverty. Well, I have a gun and with a gun you have power and we're going to feed you. And we're going to make sure that you... And the gang culture is such a family, yep. right? Like exactly. everybody's longing for family. And if they're part of a family that doesn't work really well or they have to work a ton and they don't get to have any fun, that looks like, that looks yeah. amazing. Yeah. You get all your boys and you get to do, yeah, totally. Especially the kids are often forced to kill family members as mm. one of the first brainwashing kind of techniques. And so then the rebels will say, well, you can't go back home. No one wants you now. Um, wow. And sometimes that's true. It's sad. Sure. Like if yeah. they escape and they try to go back to their village, if they've killed in their village, then um, a lot of times the villagers will say, we don't want you here. We don't want you here anymore. Um, so it's it's tough. We've even had several of our kids will say that um, the rebels will gather the kids together and say, if you want to go home, raise your hand. And then the kids who raise their hands are actually the ones that are shot. Oh, gosh. As a message of... Don't try to escape. This is your home. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is, if you even want to go home or voice that you want to go home, we'll kill you. So, 2008, you start this thing. How does it start? What does it look like? What did you, what was, what were the first things that you started doing? Obviously, we're nine years later. So, it's, or no, 11 years 11 later. 11 years, yeah. So, it looks a lot different now. But how did you begin? How did you begin to work things out? What did you begin doing? Yeah. I, just, Besides not knowing what you were doing, right? right? I, I know mean, the I feeling, just right? Did like, it. just did I it. just started to put one foot in front of the other and kind of figure it out. I I had met. I started to meet with nonprofit leaders and CEOs to say, "What did you? How'd you do this? What'd mm. you learn? What mistakes did you make? What do you wish you would have done differently?" Um, we didn't start with like a grant or this big funder, like. The people that I knew who were financially well, I didn't actually know that many people who were financially wealthy. And so like my cousins, again, from back in Farmington, Kentucky, would yeah. do the, hey, here's a little bit of money or sure. a couple of people would tithe. Um, so it was really scrappy, like super organic. And um, so we started out with me and maybe a couple volunteers. And um, the vision really from the very beginning was learn from local leaders and partner with local leaders who shared the same vision. So the vision from the beginning was that, really, it was a question back then. Could these kids do more than just survive and heal? So could they sure, yeah. heal to the point that they then could learn leadership skills, peace-building skills? Um, Instead of just survive. Right. And then could they then use their pain for purpose and become the next peace leaders mm. in their nation? Could they become the next Nelson Mandela? And then could we work with enough kids that you change the trajectory of their communities? And back then it was just this big dream. But my question was, are there other local leaders who kind of share the same vision? Um, and there were. So we started partnering with those people on the ground and um, started working with the first, I think the first group of kids we worked with was around 24. And uh, they were kids who'd been orphaned, girls and boys who were rescued child soldiers. And last year, over half of them graduated university. Wow. Isn't that incredible? That's insane. That's so cool. And we're now working with 1,200 kids in two countries. Right now, at the moment. Yeah. So just to think of like, that's what happens when you just put one foot in front of the other. Yeah. 
And you listen and you learn and you partner with people who know more than you do. Yeah. So let's get practical for a moment because a lot of people listening, um, you know, a lot of them will keep their nine to fives and will figure out ways to give a damn here and there. But a lot of people that I talk to have, you know, I do a lot of thinking and processing and talking about going the nonprofit world versus social enterprise. And obviously there's a place for both of those. I think we, we went through a season where everybody wanted to start a nonprofit for everything, mm. right? And there wasn't enough money to go around and all the big dogs got all the money and all the little dogs were 100%. like, yeah, right? So yep. versus like making something that you can sell, right? There's that that conversation to be had. Um, but at the beginning, did you uh, quit your practice altogether? Or did you work? Did you keep making money that way? Or did you say, I'm going to go all in, quit everything, and just start scrappy and just go for it. What? How did you do it? Because yeah. there's no right way. Right. But how did how did you do it? And what was kind of the timeline before you were able to like give your full time attention to mm-hmm. it? Yeah. So I the probably the first three years, maybe three, I did both. Both. Yeah. Which I'm not sure I would recommend that to everyone. Okay. But I was basically Why? well, I worked just worked too to much. Death. Yeah. You. That's all you did. That's is all work. I did. Yeah. I mean, and again, I was living off of passion because I had a clear vision for what this was going to look like, and I was all in. Um, So I was full-time private practice, and then in the evenings, early mornings, on the weekends, I would build a nonprofit. Sure. And learn as I kind of went along. And then I think maybe year – and then the first hire that I made – so I wasn't getting paid, of course, at that point. Right. And the first hire that I made was an admin manager and someone to do books. Sure, Because – Psychologists don't know a lot about numbers. Yeah. Um, and so that was great. That was helpful. And um, just kind of built it from there. So I think it was year three that I started to cut down on my practice a bit. Um, and then that was kind of, I guess, the pattern. I would cut down a bit, work a little bit more. And even now, I still see like four clients a week. But yeah, totally. Yeah. But we're like Matthew, my husband, who I met year three doing this work and then he started volunteering we met you know we cautiously started dating cuz i was i was not going to get married again mm. i was like Mm-mm, i'm not doing that again but we very cautiously started dating and he had already like he's also a trauma counselor and has been to uganda internationally done all of this work way before i met him um, doing work with children who were traumatized because of either war or atrocities. He actually got his degree in trauma counseling to do work with either rescued child soldiers or trafficked children wow. way before I met him. So then he starts volunteering. There's a spark. We knew this was either going to be a beautiful love story or a train wreck. Yeah, two counselors. Jeez right? Louise. Right? Yeah. So anyway, cautiously dated, kind of on the down low, and then ended up, we dated for two years and then got married. We celebrated our five-year anniversary. So, Congrats. Thank you. But going back to your question, yeah, I think it was a gradual incline, decline. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to point that out. I, I assumed it was going to be something like that because, it, it, it. I mean, I need to hear that. I need to hear that as someone who has too much going on, multiple projects. It, it hurts my brain when I think about all that I'm doing, and it hurts other people's brains when they hear how just crazy it is. You know, I've tried to avoid as I'm building all of this stuff. I've tried my hardest to avoid, you know, getting getting a job for a while or this and that because I'm going to make it work and it's going to happen. And it's hard. It's hard for people that that have clarity about what they want to see happen in the world to say, "Oh, 
and it's not going to happen tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I mean, you said three years before you started cutting down. So it wasn't three years before you like cut it off. Three years, over a thousand days, people that are listening, <laughs> that you did both. And you said I wouldn't recommend it, but I don't know that there's another way. Like I would say it's very, very rare, the person that gets to make a clean cut. The reality is for all of us, I think, for all, and when I say all, 99.9% of people, there's a season of life, three, four, five years, where it's just crazy hard. And we do work, you know, 19 hours a day and we don't get to do all that, you know, the fun stuff. But the alternative is shutting off that thing that we want to do and just going back to a job so that we can just come home at night and watch Netflix for four hours and fall asleep on the couch and do it all again the next day. And that's not what I want, not what you wanted, obviously. And so there's a season of life where it's probably going to be really, really hard. Yeah, I think that's true. And just stick with it. And I think the other thing that I would say when Matthew came along, both as my best friend and then eventually boyfriend and then um, husband, things changed a lot because I had a partner. Yeah. And it could have not been, it could have not even worked out that way. Like it could have been a friend of mine who was a partner. Mm. But I think that partner part makes a big difference because you're not carrying so much of the load on your own. You're not making so many decisions on your own. And so finding someone who shares that same vision and passion, um, who's also all in, then you can you just share the load with each other. So we know a fair amount about your, your exile international at this point, but not really. What do you all do and how do you do it? Like how does the work get done and what exactly is getting done? I saw a figure, you said right now, you're working with 1,200 ch- children. Yeah. And on, on your site, it says that you've worked overall with 4,500 yeah. around there. It's a huge number, first of all. Holy crap. Like, if, if, you t- if you look at how many kids are still being held captive, then you're like, ah, like, we're not even, you know, a percentage of the way there. It's a small percentage. When you think about every one of those children has the potential to become the next Nelson Mandela. Yeah. Then you realize the enormity, the immensity of what you've done and what you're doing. So I want I want to praise you and and uh, encourage you that I don't know how you feel about that number, but that number is huge and that number is very significant. So tell me about that number. Tell me about the work you're doing, how you're doing it. Yeah. So our our focus is empowering children of war and rescue child soldiers to be leaders for peace through art-focused trauma care and holistic rehabilitation. And so how we describe that is um, we go really deep. We don't do Band-Aids because we know they've been severely traumatized. And so to raise up leaders for peace, to change uh, communities, you have to instill um, and invest in them deeply. Um, what, what would an example of – sorry, I'll, I'll interrupt a few times. No, but go. Remember where I, where I cut you off at. Uh, what would a what would a band aid look like versus what you all are doing? Yeah, like are there? And I'm sure there are organizations that are doing band aid work. Yeah, well, and part of this, you know, when I answer this question, realize that I come from a psychology background sure. and I have a passion for deep change. And so, a core part of what we do is a three tier curricula based model. So, so they go deep into one. Uh, the first part of, it's called the HOPE initiative, which is the model that we use, that we created. So the first part is art-focused trauma care. They have two curricula that they go through. The second is learning peace-building and leadership skills or peace-building and conflict resolution skills training. Uh, They have a curricula that they go through and then the leadership skills training. So they truly go through like a deep 
model that's curricula-based that's we have seen a 78% decrease in trauma symptoms in two years. On top of that, it's education. We also provide education and basic needs. So a Band-Aid might look like, and not, there's nothing against this, by the way. But Just go for it. Like, let's get together on Saturday and let's all sing and dance together because that really and makes we'll feed us you feel great. And, We're going to feed yep. you. Yeah. All wonderful and great. And they leave feeling wonderful and it could be the highlight of their week. But to see deep change and raise up leaders for peace, to raise up the next Nelson Mandela's, you just have to go deep with it. To the point now that over half of our programs in Congo are led by our graduates who were rescue child soldiers, who've gone through the program, who are now graduated and trained, and they have a deep, deep passion for replicating the model that they was they were in, the program that they were in, because they see such deep, deep change with it. The work that you do should not be taken lightly by in any way. But is there – am I a fool to think that there's some level of – I mean, you're working with kids who by and large have killed other people, yeah. right? Yep. Either voluntarily or forcefully. Um, is there a level of danger to what you do? Like, I mean, both with working with these kids that could – I don't know. I've never met and engaged long-term with a child that has killed people and is brainwashed to believe that that was the right thing to do in the moment. Uh, so – I'm asking danger on, in, on two levels. One is with the children you're actually working with. Mm-hmm. And two is uh, you, you talked about, you know, 100 kids being rescued. Like, is there any fear that you, you, you the, the rebels, the army that you're taking these kids back from are going to come want their kids back? Like, how does that work? Yeah. yeah how does the, all that play into yeah. it? Yeah. Both great questions. So one, the kids that are in our program, the kids that we take in have – typically gone through maybe a month or two of sensitization. So typically they're rescued by the UN, and um, sometimes they escape really one of those two ways. So you're not actually doing We're not doing the, the rescuing. Okay. Yeah, the UN would not be happy with us yeah. if we were doing the Although Matthew and I always say, like, that's our dream job. If we had a dream job, it would be like heading into that bush and getting those kids. But no, we don't do that. So they go through after they're rescued this kind of de this uh, reentry for sure. lack of a better word, yeah. and um, a very short program that the UN and the UN partners provide, and then that's when they enter our program. So they're probably most I don't want to use the word dangerous, but sensitive. I think during that time, if, if any shit's going to hit the fan, it's going to happen during that time. I mean, it definitely could happen later. Sure. And we've had a couple of scary situations for sure, but we also know it's just part of the work that we do. Yeah. But we have been in- incredibly fortunate mm. in that. You know, I think the reason why our program is so successful is because from the beginning, we let them know that. Our, our dream for you is to become a peace leader in your nation from the beginning. We don't even use the word rescue child soldier. So we use the term young peacemaker, YPM. Mm. So if you would come to the program and, and you would say, are you a YPM or a, or a hope child? They would know what that means. And they'll probably tell you before you even ask them, I'm a YPM, which means I'm a young peacemaker. And we don't use the term orphan. The kids who are orphaned in our program, we call them hope children. Mm. So from the get-go, we're speaking over them kind of a new identity, and they definitely, like, have to go through that deep core trauma care work before they get to the part of what really can God do with this life that I've led. 
Um, but I think that's a huge reason why we don't see a ton of violence. Now, they're certainly re-triggered, but they're also constantly learning how to manage that. So that's that question. I think, you know, the other question is, yes, it's dangerous. And um, it's also relative. I mean, when, when we go over, we meaning me and my and Matthew and then a couple of teammates that we have here in Congo specifically, we don't go out after dark. We really rely on our team to tell us what's safe and what's not safe. For instance, we um, the kidnappings in Congo have been elevated the past six months. There was We went over in the spring, and a month before we got there, there was a kidnapping a mile from the Peace Live Center, which is mm. the center that we run. And so 12 people were kidnapped, and during that kidnapping, four people— These are West, like, white people? No. Or, no, they were just— Locals, yeah. all okay. locals. Yeah, so 12 were kidnapped, and six died because the family couldn't pay the ransom, Ugh. and then six were released— and we talked before kind of we started, but a month ago, our team was going out to one of our village peace programs, and on the way back, there was a rebel ambush. And so they were shot. Well, the rebels kind of met them on the road and um, shot up the car. And there were two cars behind our car, and two people got killed in those two cars. And then our program director who's like a brother to us, like he's basically a co-founder of the program in Congo, um, was shot five times. And so he's in the hospital right now, paralyzed. Wow. Um, when they met the rebels, was that just a, the rebels were going to, did, did they know who was in that vehicle or they just were pissed, What they were just going to shoot up some cars? So they uh, they ended up stealing some things from our car, so it was a robbery. Okay. Um, it could have easily turned into a kidnapping, though, which... Which um, yeah? How many team so members thankful. were in the vehicle? One, one, two, three, four. So yeah, I mean, there's three people that didn't get shot that yeah. could have been kidnapped. Yeah, yeah. But just to kind of speak to our team, they're just incredible. I mean, when I went to visit Joseph, one of the things he said to me, and this is still you went to fresh. The hospital? Yeah, yeah. I, I left to go to Rwanda like two or three days after the shooting because we had to transfer him from Congo to Rwanda because his bullet wounds were so bad. But I got there, and one of the things he said, um, we call our team on the ground our heroes. Mm. And um, they call me mom. He said, said, um, Mom, you know you call us heroes, but it is not without a sacrifice. And... And then the next day, he's talking about, he said, you know, if you did not pay us any money, we would still do this work because these are our children. Like, these are the children that we've been called to help. And um, he, he's, they're just remarkable. I mean, they, they haven't, they, him being able to walk again, um, the doctors haven't given him a high percentage of, of, in terms of a chance of him walking again. And wow. so I told the team that after I met with the doctor and they didn't miss a beat. I mean, they were just like, no, that's where God comes in. We're not afraid. That's not even true. This, their faith blows me away. And we Skyped with them yesterday, our team here, for the first time we saw all of them together. And the, the one statement they kept saying over and over and over again is, we do not fear. We are not going to fear. Well, you said they were Going right back out. Yeah. Same road. Same road. The the 
there are two counselors that were in that car, and they went back to deliver. So we have a sponsorship program, and they were delivering school supplies. And they went right back down the road to the peace program that they went to a month ago where on the way back they were attacked. And they just said, you know, we got, we're in the palm of God's hands. That's what they say. That's beautiful. It's incredible. That's really incredible. And so that, to speak to like what you're saying about what we were talking about before as far as like Americans having something to offer them or us needing to give them something. They got it. Psh, what? They got it. Oh, yeah. They even that statement, like, "Hey, I mean, here's the guy that just got shot up, and he's saying, if you didn't pay us, we'd still do it.' Yeah, that's insane. It's my calling. Yeah, this is what I do. Yeah, that's the difference between a job and a calling, right? Totally. Yeah. So, what's the future look like? Are are, are you uh, is Exile International doing everything that you wanted to do, or are there not bigger in that you're not doing big work already? But are there are there what's the what's the kind of fulfilled dream look like? Yeah. Or is it just more of the same? Yeah. Well, what we're doing is working, you know, and I think um, we're actually, we've created a replication model. So we've realized, wow, this is really, really working. And our graduates are hungry to go out and replicate the program. So it's like organically replicating itself. We're actually having to pull them back a little bit. Like, okay, wait, before we just yeah, go for at the it. Bit. Yeah. And so we created a replication model where it's not completely done, but um, we're putting the whole model into, if you would look at it, it would kind of be a manual because we have other organizations saying, hey, can you partner with us and teach us how you guys are doing this? And so the dream is that we are able to partner with other organizations working with war-affected children in different countries and train them on what we're doing so that it just kind of replicates itself. But our, our hope is to create multiple peace programs a year in the villages. Um, some of the peace programs I've never been to because it's just not safe for me to be there. Sure, um, I don't have to be there. That's the cool thing about it. Beautiful. I don't need to go and see everything. Um, Matthew went to one last year, and they had not seen a white person in six years. And so he sent me this video of hundreds of people coming out to see him. And so that's the dream is that we go into these remote places that it's hard to get to, but our graduates can get to because they're from these places. And then um, keep doing what we're doing, raising up peace leaders. For a moment, would 2019 Bethany talk to 2008 Bethany as you're starting this journey out? What advice would you give yourself? And I'm asking that because I think a lot of people that are listening – are in the maybe, you know, 2008 Bethany phase, right? The, Mm -hmm. I have a dream, I have something that I want to tackle and do, and I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And maybe they're coming out of a traumatic experience themselves, or maybe they're healthy and everything's fine, but they still want to do something. Would you change anything? What advice Mm -hmm. would you give 2008 Bethany? I think I would tell her, Three things. Okay. One is it's going to be okay. Yeah. It's going to be okay. We need to hear that every freaking day. It will be okay. Yeah. Because I thought about this today. Like, think about whatever trial that you've gone through, the worst trial of your life. It may not have ended the way that you wanted it to end, but you've probably learned and grown from it and it worked out somehow. But you don't know that when you're going through it. So, So one, 
it's going to be okay. Chill the heck out. Two, rally your people. Do not do it alone. It's too hard. It's too lonely. There are lots of people out there with passion. Grab a hold of them. Don't do it alone. It's good. And this is from a faith perspective. And this is just words that I feel like our team overseas have just been speaking to me over and over again. Just trust God. Because from my perspective, from a faith perspective, I don't think any of this is my idea. I truly believe this was all God's idea. And he said, hey, do you want to join this idea that I have? Come along with me. You can be the hands and feet on the ground, but this is really all me and my idea. And if it is, which I believe that it is, then there's an element of trusting that he's actually the CEO. And so for me, that is something that I struggle with a ton because as a three on the Enneagram and as driven, oh, I'm like, get it all done. let's go. And like, I've yep. got to make sure we meet our budget and I've got to make sure that these people are trained. And so there's this element of like, why do I live my life as if I'm doing all this on my own sure. when I'm actually not doing all this on my own? Yeah. Yeah. Those are great. All three of those. It's going to be okay. We need to just put that on our mirror. We need to, because like people tell, I tell people that all the time. People are scared for me. Like hmm. people ask me all the time, like, why are you like you've got three kids and you guys we, we've never lived in a place more than four years at this three years at this point. We're always traveling and doing the crazy thing that everybody else is like, whoa, that's really wild. And I always tell them, you know, there's no scenario where we end up homeless and mm. without. Yep. Like there's it, it won't happen because we have amazing friends and family and community and like so why not? If if I know that there's no way, like I'm going to fail tons, but there's no way where, again, we're under a bridge some, and people are like, you should have taken care of your family. Like there's no scenario where that happens because I'm so blessed. Yeah. And most of us are blessed in that way. So if you know that's a reality and whether you have, whether there's a faith component or not, for you, there is one. For me, there is one as well. Whether, whether that's there or not, it's going to be okay. So go do it. So you have YOLO, you know, yeah. like you have one shot at life and it could end five minutes from now with me choking on this water and I, something happens and our, uh, or I live a full life to 120 or 30 if Elon Musk can figure his shit out <laughs> um, and give us longer lives through a pill or a thing, right? But either way, I've only got one shot at it. Yeah. So go do it. Like do it. Yeah. Because it's going to be okay. Yeah. And rally your people. And trust God. Mm -hmm. And if you figure out those three things, like, just go do it. Yeah. Because you're probably, like, we don't want to be 80 years old in a nursing home and Not and think all. about, like, man, that nine to five job rocked my yeah. world. That yep. was incredible. Yep. And now I get my 1500 bucks a month of Social Security. That was that was worth it all. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we are going to land this conversation, land this plane, whatever. Um I have one more question for you, though. The question is one that I ask every guest, and I'm always so excited to hear the answer to this question because, I think again, it goes back to what we just talked about. Like, we've got one shot at life, and I just, wanna, I just want to make the most of it and go out with a bang and just do the craziest, wild, wildest things that help other people because there's too many people not doing that, and I want to yeah. be an example of what it looks like to step out, in, step out into the unknown and just do it, right? And so I love this question. I ask myself it all the time, and I'm anxious to hear what you have to say. So someday you're going to die. 
Hopefully it's many, 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 many years from now, but it's, it's inevitable. Once you're gone, I have the gift of giving your eulogy and all of your friends and family and your exile international teammates and uh, the people you've worked with and for and all the children that you've helped over the mm-hmm. years, they're all there. It's a, it's a freaking stadium full at that point. And uh, again, I'm lucky enough to give your eulogy. What do you – and we're there to celebrate your – celebrate and mourn your life, right? Because you've lived a long and full life. What do you hope that I would say on that day? I mean, I would hope that you could say about me that I lived a surrendered life full of joy. Because I think those two things kind of – I think it's so important – to go deep into the hard places of life, not to, not to like numb yourself out with them, not to say that's too much for me to hear, but to sit in your suffering, to sit in other people's suffering and then think, okay, what is this teaching me? But also at the same time, hold this freedom that joy brings. I'm just like, I don't know, laugh and do crazy things and dance in your kitchen. Like holding those two things, diving into deep suffering, even if your own or other people, at the same time, noticing just like the tiniest butterfly landing on a flower yeah. and just embracing the joy and laughing so loud. Like my laugh, I feel like annoys everyone in the room because it is so loud. And I don't do it intentionally. Half you the time and my I'm, wife would get along. I'm like covering my mouth. I love her laugh, mouth. but people always oh. turn their heads when she I laughs. Know. Matthew always says he can be literally across, oh, yeah. like totally across somewhere and know exactly where I'm sitting. I know where Becky is and if she's having fun <laughs> based on uh, exactly. if I can hear her. Yep. Yeah. And I think that's what freedom brings. Like yeah. freedom to sit in suffering, but also freedom just to live a joyful life. Yeah. I love that because we think those two things most of the time, people that have a faith background or not, you hear those two words, surrender and joy, and you think those don't live together. How can you sit in suffering, uh, surrender to a calling or God or whatever, and be joyful? Like those two don't often, we don't think they can live together, but boy, do they live together. Yeah. And they need to live together. They need to live together. I think I'm a big fan of Stoic philosophy and the Stoics, and I think they had so many things right because they... They, they approached every moment of every day with a sobriety, mm-hmm. with a realization that, like, really, think about how many people are suffering within, within a stone's throw of where we are right now. We're sitting in a podcast studio inside of Weld in Nashville, Tennessee. The people that are walking by the door, the people that are here, like, there's so much suffering going on right now. Mm-hmm. So much hurt, so much pain. And simultaneously, there's so much joy and so much freedom, right? And Holding those two things in tension are the only way that we can see a problem and then come up with a solution for it. Yes. And not just see the problem and say, oh, shit. Right. What are we going to do about it? It's hopeless. Or shut your eyes to the problem. Or shut your eyes to it and watch Netflix every night Mm -hmm. and like just live. Exactly. There's another. Like it's not just feeling just down all the time. Some people just ignore it. They shut it off. I can't deal with that. And I don't blame. Like that's sometimes I, I think, man, that'd be nice. Just like not think about. The fact that within a stone's throw of this building, and that and that's just within this building, there's so much suffering. There's broken relationships. There's people that have been molested and raped. And there's people that are being hurt right now by other people. And there's people that have lost their jobs. Like, there's so much. And that's just right here. 
now go to the continent of Africa and you've got all these like places that we work in and love and like, it just, it's, it's tough. Mm -hmm. So we have to live in that tension of like surrender and joy or else life's going to suck a little bit or a lot of it. Mm -hmm. I know. It's a beautiful place to be. Yeah. And I think that that giving, especially with the work that we do, we have to really do a ton of self-care. Yeah. And a a lot of that self-care is just being just goofy. Yeah. And just laughing. Yes. And yeah. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, I think you do have to hold both. I love that. I love that. Well, you have a phone call to get on. Yes. And um, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me and us. And I I know people are going to learn a lot from you and be encouraged by your story. So thanks for sharing it with us today. Yeah. Thanks for the work that you do, too. Friends, I hope you feel encouraged and challenged and helped by my conversation with Bethany. Please follow her on Instagram and all other social media. You'll find the links in the show notes. And an extra big please, follow the work of Exile International on Instagram at exileintl and exileinternational.org on the interwebs. They're doing incredible work. I'd love to see some of you get involved. And please buy her book, The Color of Grace, amazing. I'll have the link also in the show notes. As always, you can find links and more information about this podcast conversation and all things Let's Give a Damn by going to, you guessed it, letsgiveadam.com. If you love what we're doing on this show, please tell a friend, leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or consider throwing a few dollars our way each month to support the production and execution of this show by going to patreon.com slash letsgiveadam. That's patreon.com slash letsgiveadamweed be so grateful. Next week's podcast is truly incredible. I can't wait for you to hear it. I chat with Raheem Buford, a man that committed murder when he was 19, spent 26 years in prison, and is out now committing his life to help pay for bail for families who can't afford it. And he started an organization to help serve, love, and provide community for those coming out of prison, etc., etc. He's truly an amazing dude. Can't wait for you to glean uh, from his story and from his wisdom. This podcast episode is created by Chad Snavely and yours truly. The music is by our friend and podcast guest alum, Propaganda. I can't wait to spend time with you next week. Love y'all. Bye. Peace.